0: Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, my son is a recent college graduate thinking about work and what kind of work he wants to do and what kind of career he wants to be involved in. And so I'm going to put in a shameless plug to start with. If you know someone with a job for a young man with a communications degree, now there's a couple of parameters, high pay, low stress, flexible and minimal hours, and huge benefits. If you've got something like that, then I think he would probably be interested. But if you're at the stage of life when you are young and looking for a job, the task can be intimidating and daunting. There are just so many options to consider and certainly it seems like a long-term commitment to find the career that you're going to spend the rest of your life in. And so there are a lot of factors to weigh and choices to make. For one, you have to take into consideration, of course, your own abilities, your talents, the way you are gifted, and of course, the type of degree that you have earned. It's easy to apply for jobs these days. Most of it is done online. So you can apply for jobs rather quickly in all sorts of fields, whether you actually qualify for those jobs or not. Experience is a factor. Who hasn't heard that in trying to find a job? Well, you just don't have enough experience, which is frustrating because then we say, well, how do I get experience if no one will hire me? You have to consider the hours and the location. You have to think about the pay rate or salary and, of course, the all-important benefits. What is going to be my work-life balance? How many hours am I going to have to put in? What about vacation and stuff like that? How about health insurance? One of the biggest perks in any position, so important that oftentimes people use that as a deciding factor on what job to take. Of course, when it comes to the younger generations, it's not just about these factors that come into making a decision. Many of them want to find a job that doesn't just pay the bills, though, of course, that is part of the issue, but they want to find a job where they know they're actually adding value to society and finding purpose in their lives. They want to know they are doing something that makes a difference, not just drawing a paycheck. They want to be satisfied and find meaning in what they do. They want to have purpose in all that they're doing. Another factor some consider when starting out a career is, well, how long do I have to do it before I can quit? I forgot to factor that one in when I was choosing careers. But some of you have perks where once you put in 30 years of service, you can quit. You can quit. We don't like to use that word though, so we call it retiring. Sounds much nicer. So after 30 years, you can retire and draw a pension and you can either get another job if you need to, so you're drawing two checks, or if you've invested well enough, you can retire altogether. Many start out their careers with excitement, desiring to change the world or at least their little part of the world, only to come to the latter half of their career and counting down the days until they no longer have to do what they excitingly began doing many years previous. Well, as you've guessed, I am going to talk about work this morning. I know it's a four-letter word. I know it's Sunday, the day of rest, when most of us have the day off, and so we ought not to be talking about work on such a day. But as you may have also guessed, I'm not really going to be talking about the work you and I do on a a five-day-a-week basis. Instead, I'm going to be talking about work that applies to every Christian here, whether you are still in school, just starting out your career, whether you've been in your job for decades, or whether you've been retired. If you're a believer, the kind of work I'm talking about this morning applies to you. So we've been talking about the kingdom of heaven, we have been doing that via some of the parables of Jesus, and we will continue to do so today. But the question we want to consider this morning is this, what do we do in the present kingdom of God while we await the future consummation of that kingdom? Remember we've talked about those dual aspects of the kingdom. There is a present reality to the kingdom of God, and yet there is a future reality, a future consummation that we await. So the question is, while we wait the future consummation of the kingdom of God, what do we do? Well, we certainly do wait, and we certainly do watch, but we're going to see this morning that we also are to work. We are to watch for the coming of Christ. We are to wait expectingly for that day, but we are not to do all of that passively while we sit and do nothing else. We are to work in the meantime. So this morning, we are talking about kingdom work. Our text is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, I should have told you that earlier. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he, had, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, as you can see, this parable is a bit longer than the other parables we have looked at in the last two weeks. But the story itself is rather straightforward, though the message is a little harder to decipher, and it is easy to get off track with this particular parable. And so to avoid that, we need to start by looking at the familiar surroundings. Now that is just my way of making sure point one parallels and alliterates with the other three points. I'm really simply trying to say, as we often do, we need to look at the context of this parable, the surroundings of this parable, so that we do not get off track in our interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. So we are actually still in the last week of Jesus' life. He is still in Jerusalem, even though we've jumped multiple chapters to get to chapter 25. In all likelihood, we are on Tuesday of Passion Week there in Jerusalem, just a day later than the story we looked at last week. This section is part of what we traditionally call the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse encompasses all of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And it is called that, if you look back to chapter 24 and verse 3, it is called that for this reason. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So as you can see, this is a private conversation between Jesus and his disciples after they have asked him about when he is going to come again and what will be the signs of that coming. Therefore, all of what we see in Matthew 24 and 25 is somehow in answer to that question. So we know already that the parable that we're looking at today has something to do with the end of the age. There are five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. This Olivet Discourse is the last of the five. The first, of course, is the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. The second discourse occurs in chapter 10, and it is the commissioning of the disciples. The third is the parables from Matthew 13, which we looked at a few of them a few weeks ago. The fourth section occurs in chapter 18 and also includes some parables. And then again, here we are in the fifth of these discourses in the Olivet Discourse in these two chapters. Chapter 24 is more straightforward teaching. That is, it's not parables. It is primarily didactic teaching from Jesus, though, of course, he does not tell them or us everything they or we want to know about the end of the age. And then chapter 25, we find two parables, the second of which we are looking at today. The first parable is the parable of the ten virgins. The focus on that parable is waiting and watching, being prepared for the coming of Christ. We discover in that parable that of the ten virgins, five of them had been prepared. They were ready for the coming of Christ. They were ready for the bridegroom when he came. But five other of those virgins were not ready. And therefore, when the bridegroom finally came, later than they had anticipated, but he finally came, those five who were not ready were shut out of the banquet. They were not allowed into the wedding. And the conclusion of that parable is fairly clear. Chapter 25 and verse 13. Jesus says, but the one, uh, that's not the right chapter, chapter 25, verse 13. But he answered, truly I say to you, you do not, that's still not the right verse. Verse 13. I mean, I should know this, right? Here's the conclusion of this parable. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So the conclusion to the first parable is to watch. That is what that parable is about. But there is more that we can do while we watch and while we wait, and that is what our parable is about this morning. It is not that we simply passively watch and wait, but there is an active element to all of this. And we know that it's still about the kingdom of heaven when we come to verse 14, for it will be like. This is still under the umbrella of verse 1 of chapter 25, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like. So when he says in verse 14, for it will be like, that tells us he's still talking about the kingdom of heaven in this second story. And that's important for us to remember, again, so that we do not go off track. This is not a financial seminar that is espousing the benefits of investing. This is not about CDs, if we want to play it safe or taking more risk and getting involved in the stock market. This is not about whether to put our money under the mattress so that it cannot be lost, or to put it in a money market so that we get just a little bit of interest. Frankly, this story is not about finances at all. That is just the means that Jesus is using to teach us about the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, it is not also primarily about knowing what your natural abilities are and using them when you have opportunity, though there are some parallels with that and some truths that we could certainly learn. That is not the primary truth of this story. Ultimately, this is about the kingdom of heaven, and it is about working in the present kingdom of heaven until the kingdom is consummated. So that is the familiar surroundings. Secondly, we need to look at the faithful servants. See now why I called it the familiar surroundings. I've got to do the F-S the whole way through. So the faithful servants. These are the first two servants, of course, and that is where we will begin. So the owner goes on a journey, leaving his servants to take care of everything while he was gone. He gives to these three servants in the story varying amounts of talents. Now, of course, in our language, talents concern our natural abilities. But that is not what it means in this story. A talent here was a unit of measure. It was not a coin. It was not a a denomination. It was a unit of measure. So you could have a talent of gold, or more likely here, you could have a talent of silver. Regardless of what the amount of money was, The word translated money in verse 18 is actually the word that can be translated silver as well. And so it's probably a talent of silver, but it is a lot of money regardless of the denomination. If we want to modernize this story, we might say something like this. An owner went away, a very rich owner, and he gave to one servant $10 million, or I'm sorry, $5 million to another $2 million and to a third one million dollars. Now all of those are huge sums of money to us, and yet they are considerably variant in the amount of money that they actually are. And so that is what we have in this story. The distribution, of course, was done based on ability, which tells us that the results will also be measured somehow in this manner. This is not a competition. One servant is not going to be compared to another servant. Instead, they are going to be judged on the basis of the ability that they had been given and whether or not they were faithful with that ability. So as you know in the story, the first two men double the master's money, though we are not told how they do it. In fact, it's interesting that the master, as far as we know in this story, doesn't tell them what to do with the money at all. He doesn't tell them how to go about doing anything with it. He simply gives it to them and trusting them with it and says, I'm going to leave for a while. But whatever they do, we do know that they were responsible, they were diligent, and they were effective in their work. And obviously we know that because they were fruitful in what they did. They doubled their master's money. So that when he returns, and this after a long time, which is a note to remind us that the return of Christ might just be longer than we anticipated or expected. But the owner does return, and naturally, when this happens, when he does return, he's going to call his servants to him and he wants an account of what they've done. He wants to know what has happened with the investment that he has entrusted them with. So, one by one, the three come to him, starting, of course, with the first two. That we are labeling faithful servants. Now, notice that the words of the master to the two of them are identical. So, again, the amount of money is not the issue. Yes, one had been given five and he doubled it to ten. The other had been given two and he doubled it to four. But none of that is the issue because the master's words to both of those servants are indeed identical. They are going to receive the same words of praise and they are going to receive the same reward. That's because this is based on faithfulness with what one has, not the total quantity. Did you see that in both both verses 21 and 23? Well done, good and faithful servant. They were both good and faithful, meaning they had worked for the master and therefore they received the same reward. Well, what was that reward? Well, it might surprise you to see, first of all, that the reward involved more responsibility. The master said, you have been faithful over a little. I will put you in charge over more. Now, we sort of shy away from this sometimes. Some people don't like the idea of more responsibility. They don't want more to do. In fact, we might even tell the new guy at work, you might want to settle down just a little bit. You might not want to be so overly zealous to do such a great job because if you keep going this way, they're just going to give you more to do. And you might not like that. But here it certainly makes sense. They have proven to be faithful over what they've been given and therefore they can be entrusted with more. So the master is going to do just that. But more important as far as the reward goes is that last phrase, enter into the joy of your master. Now, I recognize that that phrase is not so familiar to us, and we don't immediately understand exactly what it means. We can go several directions here without it being really clear whether or not we're on the right path. First of all, I would conclude as I thought through this that entering into the joy of the master would be somewhat synonymous with being in the kingdom of heaven. It is a validation from the master that they do indeed belong in the kingdom. They are not imposters. And they belong in the kingdom because they've been faithful to the master. So in one sense, it's an affirmation of who they are. Again, not that they've worked their way into the kingdom, but they're working for the kingdom. And this is a huge distinction. But they're working for the kingdom validates that they are, in fact, valid members of that kingdom. Their works have given evidence that they genuinely belong. Now, I know I mentioned this last week, but frankly, there is considerable overlap in the parables of the kingdom. Sometimes the basic point Jesus is trying to make in multiple parables is somewhat the same, though he uses a different story in order to do it. But doesn't that at least remind us that sometimes we need reminders? I mean, if Jesus told multiple stories with essentially the same point, doesn't it remind us that we might need to hear it more than once? That sometimes a thing Jesus says is hard for us to hear, so we need to hear it again? Or that sometimes what Jesus said falls on deaf ears because we're hard of hearing, not physically, but spiritually, and therefore we need to hear it again? So, yes, I am saying it again. Faithful servants in the kingdom of God work faithfully in that kingdom. And that is not work salvation. It is not legalism. It is instead New Testament Christianity where those in Christ faithfully follow him, which involves working in his kingdom. Now, the second part of this phrase given as a reward is the presence of the master enter into the joy of your master, enter into the presence of your master, they are granted access into the presence of the king, something no servant would really expect or ordinarily dream of. And it isn't that the most, and isn't this the most important element in the kingdom of heaven. We who do not deserve to be there have been given access into the very presence of God. Again, not based on what we do, but based on what has been done for us in the sacrifice of Christ. And then we also see the attitude in play here. It is not just that they are in the presence of the master, as great as that is, but there's that little word joy. Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that the very thing so many people are longing for? Isn't that the very thing so many people are searching for? Striving to find it in all kinds of earthly means. And sure, sometimes they do find it temporarily, but it is always fleeting. But here we are talking about joy eternal in the presence of God as the faithful servants in his kingdom have access to his presence and find joy in that. Yes, we still suffer here. Yes, we still endure trials and tribulations. Yes, we still go through temptations But our future is a promised, unmitigated joy in the presence of the master whom we have served all of these years. And I want to add one more element to this before we move on. He speaks of not just entrance into the kingdom. He speaks not just of acceptance in the kingdom. But he speaks of intimacy with the king. Jesus, one time, was talking elsewhere in the Gospels to his disciples, and he said to them, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. That speaks of intimacy. What a powerful statement. And that's the picture we see here. So two of these three servants are faithful servants because they have continued to work in the kingdom of God while, yes, they are waiting and they are watching But they are working faithfully in the meantime. And again, that's the key word, faithfulness. It's not a matter of the quality or quantity of their ability. It was the fact that they were faithful. And so they were told to enter into the joy of his presence. But what about the third servant? Well, we need to go on now to talk about fearful servants. Now, you might notice that I left that plural, fearful servants. And yet, there is only one fearful servant in this story. So, why would I make that plural? Well, because some of us might be that fearful servant. So, there might be more than one fearful servant, not in the story, of course, but in our hearing. So, I've left it plural. This servant does not in any way try to advance the mission of the master. He simply hides the money so that it can be safely returned at some point. Now, we talked in the sermon on the treasure in the field about how this was a normal thing to do in that time, that treasures often were hidden so that they could be protected. But in this case, it is clear that the master expected a return on his investment. He did not just want his money back. He did not just want a safe return of his principal. He wanted to earn money on top of that. And so this servant waits, as the previous parable encourages, but he does not work during this time. And as a result, the master's response to him is drastically different than we saw in the first two. When the third servant comes to the master and he gives him back the one talent that he had left him with, he approaches this whole situation drastically differently. He begins by blaming the master himself. Did you catch that? I knew you to be a harsh taskmaster who expected rewards that had not been earned. Now, there is no indication that this is true. The other two servants certainly didn't take this approach. And therefore, this is just an excuse. And we know this is just an excuse in part because Jesus turns his words back on him. But he says, because you're a cruel master, I have hidden the money so that I could give it back when you returned. But this is just an excuse. So Jesus says to this third servant, well, if that were true, if you thought that's the kind of master I was, then shouldn't that have motivated you all the more to return some money on my investment so that I would not be angry with you? You could have at least given it to someone for interest. Now, the banking system in Rome was not developed as it is now, but they certainly did have instances where individuals lent money to other individuals and charged interest in the process. And so it is abundantly clear that the master is not happy with this effort since there was really no effort at all. And thus his response to this fearful servant is much different. He is not good. He is not faithful. He is said to be a wicked and lazy servant. Wicked because he has blamed the master rather than take responsibility for his own actions and lazy because he's done nothing with the money that the master had entrusted him with. And therefore the money is taken from him. The one talent that he still has is taken from him and given to the man who has the 10 talents. Now this might seem strange to us. I mean, isn't this a classic case of the rich getting richer and the poor being taken away from what little they have? But that's not the point here. If he's not going to work, then again, from a business sense, it makes good sense to take the money from him who's not using it effectively and give it to the guy who is using the money effectively. But again, this parable is not about how business works. You remember two weeks ago when we began this series, we looked briefly as an introduction into why Jesus taught in parables in answer to a question the disciples asked him. They simply said, why are you talking in stories? And he gave them an answer. And part of that answer was that he said, I I teach in parables so that some who already see will see more and some who cannot see will continue not to see. And then he concluded that by saying, to the one who has much, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that is what we are seeing an example of in this story. A spiritual truth. Again, not a material principle. This is not about money. Jesus is not saying that I'm going to give more money to those who faithfully follow me, and I'm going to take it away from the ones who don't. That's not the point. This is a spiritual truth. But he says... The one who understands spiritual truth is going to grow even more. But the one who is blind to these things, even what little spiritual insight he or she may have had, will be taken from him. And so this man does not enter into the joy of the master. Rather, he is cast aside into darkness and suffering. Darkness because God is light, and there God will not be. Suffering because it is an eternal punishment for those who rebel against God. And again, these words are nearly identical to the conclusion of the parable of the nets that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So the third servant, by virtue of his inactivity, has proven that he has no part in the kingdom of heaven, and thus he is cast aside. He has not borne any fruit, as the story makes abundantly clear. Jesus, as part of his Sermon on the Mount, again, that's the first discourse in Matthew, He's talking from a negative standpoint about false teachers, but he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. And while he's talking from a negative standpoint about those who are not truly his, even as we see here, both sides are true. We know them by their fruits. The first two servants proved to be faithful servants by their fruit. And the third servant, by his own admission, is a fearful servant and proves that he does not belong in the kingdom of God because he bears no fruit. Fruit. But before we finish up here, I want to draw a few conclusions so that we can apply this spiritual truth to our own lives. So that we've not just heard the story and know about these three men, but so that we instead look at our own lives. And so I want to conclude by talking about a future separation. This entire chapter is about separation or division. Now, we are quite familiar with that in our own day and in our own nation. We are heavily divided over a host of things. We are divided over politics, and that is why states now can be defined as red or blue based on how they vote. We are divided over moral issues like abortion or gender identity, just to name a few. And these are just the prominent examples, and the list appears to be endless over the ways we can divide, even within the church. Churches are divided now over all kinds of secondary and beyond issues such that church members are hopping around from one church to another. They've always done that to some degree, but they're doing it more than ever because they want to find a church where everybody believes exactly like they believe on all moral, political, and theological issues. And so we often talk about our need for unity, how we need to come together around our commonalities, And while we long for that, instinctively, we probably recognize that it's likely not going to happen. There are just too many divisions. And so we pray for unity, we hope for unity, we long for unity, but we really don't think we're actually going to achieve it. But this chapter, without a doubt, tells us that there is a coming future separation which will never be mended. Again, that first parable talks about five wise virgins and five foolish virgins a, virgins, a separation. The third story in this chapter talks about a separation between the sheep and the goats. And of course, in our chapter we, or in our parable, we've seen a separation between the faithful servants and the fearful servants. So what does this story teach us? First of all, it teaches us that the king will return. He may return later than we expected, but he will return. And when he does return, he will settle accounts with his servants. And at that point, no excuse will be justified or accepted. Those who demonstrate their faith by their work will be in the kingdom of God and will be those good and faithful servants. The rest will prove to have been imposters. But finally, we need to talk about what kind of work we're talking about here. We've said we need to wait. We've said we need to watch. But we've said that this parable is talking about the need to work. But what kind of work are we talking about? What does the faithful worker do until Christ returns? Well, do you remember our definition of the kingdom of heaven? The redemptive reign or rule of Christ among his people. So if we want to talk about what kind of work we're supposed to be doing, we need to go back to that definition, the redemptive reign and rule of Christ. Therefore, our work has something to do with the redemptive reign of Christ. So, God has entrusted the gospel to us, His servants. The kingdom of heaven is not just about us accepting it so that we can say, I'm in. God has entrusted us with the gospel so that we now have a role to play in the advancement of that kingdom because that's the way God has seen fit to advance his kingdom. His means of advancing the kingdom is using us, the servants of that kingdom. Which means, first of all, we need to prioritize growing personally in our faith. We cannot share or promote that which we do not have or understand. So we need to be growing spiritually. And that, of course, means that we need to be putting our faith into action. What we believe transforms the way we behave. And then with that as the foundation, we need to invest in the kingdom of God. Yes, part of that is financially. And I do not like talking about finances within the church because then you get accused of that's all you care about. And that's not all I care about, but we do need to be reminded that it does take finances to advance the kingdom of God, that it does take money to have ministry. And therefore, if the kingdom of God is important to us and we are part of that kingdom, then we should have no problem investing in the kingdom of God. But it's certainly not just about money. We ought to be praying about the kingdom of God, praying that others will be transformed and grow in their faith which of course means that we must be sharing our faith. We tend to look around in our part of the country and assume that everybody already knows the gospel. They've either accepted it or rejected it, but surely they know it. But because there are a host of false views and misconceptions, the gospel still needs to be shared. And this responsibility falls on every faithful worker in the kingdom of God, regardless of what your day job is or lack thereof. And so there is much work to be done while we wait and while we watch for the return of Christ. And like we see so many other times, we've seen today that there are only two options. You can be a faithful servant and one day here, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the master. Or you can be a fearful servant and hear Jesus say, you wicked and lazy servant, and be cast out into outer darkness the answer is not to wait until that day to find out the answer is to put your faith into action now and get involved in kingdom work let me pray father we do thank you that you not only call us to be part of your kingdom you want us to work you want us to serve you want to use us to advance that kingdom Obviously, that's done in different ways with with many of our gifts and talents and abilities. But in many ways, it's also identical. We are all to pray. We are all to give. We are all to, to serve. And so I pray that we would be those faithful servants working until the day you come or the day you call us home. Prioritizing not only our place in the kingdom of heaven, but our desire to see others join us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.